Now, over to you, Scotty. Over We've got a special guest on the line we, today. We do have a very special guest on the line today, and uh, and I'll just start uh, momentarily just with some background. So uh, we're going to be joined momentarily by John Sylvester, um, famously renowned Australian journalist and crime writer, uh, also uh, famously known uh, and appears uh, on the airwaves with 3AW uh, with his good mate uh, Ross Stevenson as a sly of the underworld. And uh, if I may just have five seconds just to go back, uh, John has written, uh, currently writing with The Age, uh, he's written with The Herald Sun and, and others, written and co-written, I should say, a number of best-selling books with his uh, good mate Andrew Rule, based on crime in Melbourne, and I can imagine that they've had some pretty good fodder over the journey. Jeez. But uh, without further ado, it's a uh, it's a very warm welcome to you, John, and thank you for joining us on Two Smoking Guns. G'day, boys. How are we? Yeah, we're going well. Going well indeed. Thank you. So um, I, I'm always fascinated um, by crime and I suppose um, uh, colourful characters or crime figures in whichever way you want colourful to describe them. And, yeah. You know, and at times how we've got to sort of dance around things we, we can't sort of talk about because you know, things are ongoing. But I mean, over the journey and I suppose of recent times, you know, the, the biggest story would appear is, uh, is Nicola Gobbo where I suppose uh, without putting too, fi- too fine a point to it, um, work both sides of the fence. So, um, love to just get your uh, your whole take of that uh, slide, if uh, if that's okay. Well, Nicola Gobbo, you couldn't make up a story like that. Uh, you know, from one of the blue blood families um, of Australia, yeah. a uh, high flying barrister. She's pretty good at it too. Good work ethic and so on. But she made the mistake, of course, of getting too close to the clients. So, sort of colleagues would see her having coffee with them and be a bit concerned, see them having lunch with her, a bit more concerned. Then they realised that she was partying with them. Uh, and many of them, up to judges, took her out and said, Nicola, you've got a really good career here. Don't screw it up by doing what you're doing. But the thing is, Nobody within the law actually took her aside. You know, she didn't go to the ethics committee or anything else. And uh, what we didn't know, of course, was that she was equally close to some of the police. I think if you really drill down, she just needed to be loved. Mm. Right. Well, Uh, she'd be in love with the uh, portrait, the casting of her on the television show, Uh, John. We were just talking off air. She'd be delighted with that uh, (laughs) that casting because uh, it's made her look like a very glamorous young lady. Is it airbrushed? (laughs) Is it a little um, sly? I mean, she was a sort of a glamorous uh, character amongst any mockbill and those sort. And in fact, when a younger, prettier lawyer came along, she became extremely. Jealous because Is that the Zara Guard Wilson. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right, and um, yeah. that's just the way the way of the world. And um, what happened um, was that Nicola became extremely jealous. My own view is that she she had a stroke at a very young age, and I was never close to her. But I saw her in the street, and she looked terrible. She just looked gaunt and tired and sad. So really? Said I went and saw her and said, "How are you?" And she said, "I've learnt that they. I always thought they were my friends." She said, "I carried a beeper. That's how long ago it was. I carried a beeper oh. twenty four hours a day, and uh, and I was always on call for them. But when I got sick, uh, only one of them came to see me. So she she sort of said, 
I, I realised that they're just clients. And I reckon that's when um, she decided, she sort of fell back mm. into that role. And I reckon that, you know, like the alcoholic um, chucks everything out of the fridge. Yeah. I think she went to the police to effectively burn those bridges so that she couldn't go back. But it is often the case when someone turn, changes side, she became not just an informer, but an extremely enthusiastic one and, and a reckless one. Mm. And uh, the police were trying to exit her because of the risk, but she wouldn't. They wanted her to stop dealing with the Tony Mockbells of the world. Uh, Tony, of course, uh, sees Nicola now as the uh, get-out-of-jail card. Oh, you know, Nicola was playing both sides of the fence. But the thing about it, that is that um, police managed to get $55 million worth of assets out of Tony. Tony uh, was a grown man when he... He jumped bail, yep. and Tony pleaded guilty to a number of charges of drug trafficking, which happened while he was on bail, when he he when he done a runner and was overseas. Uh, Nicola Gobbo had nothing to do with the arrest of Tony Bockbell. Uh, that was just good policing, and there was an informer, but it wasn't Nicola. Somebody will call the musician. Mm-hmm. And he came in, okay. and he provided uh, detailed information. It's almost like Mission Impossible. He also became an enthusiastic informer and at one point um, he rang the head of Piranha, Jim O'Brien, while he was in the company of some of the Mockbell's senior people um, and he said, get off the phone for God's sake. Anyway, yeah. this bloke turns up at the Piranha office and says, you might like this. Wow. And gives him a USB stick and he'd suck the guts out of the computer when they're out of the room. If he'd been found, <laughs> he would have been killed. Wow. Instead, uh, he, he had a uh, he probably got a close to a million dollars in the reward money. He's part of a band. And oh. He rang a band member, but he good. said, "Look, mate, I, I can't make that gig on the weekend. <laughs> I'm a bit busy." And then he and then he said, "And this phone will never ring again." Uh, he's probably in Brazil playing the flute. Playing <laughs> <laughs> and Sly, is it right? Uh, did I read correctly that um, Nicola actually put her hand out for the million? Oh, really? Yeah. In terms of, yeah. the, uh, you know, I think uh, I think that's mine because I've told you where um, where Fatso is. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and she didn't get it. No, 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 no. I, I read that. Hey, um, uh, well, we just want to jump back for a sec because um, Sly was uh, remiss of me, really, at the at the very uh, top of our top of our introduction of you today. Um, that uh, we, as a show and a couple of blokes um, and as a community, want to acknowledge um, the falling of. Um, um, four members this week of, uh, of our police force who mm. do a fantastic job and um, have sadly lost their uh, life in the line of duty. And, uh, you know, we as a community are incredibly sad about that. We read about family and friends and all the people are affected, but there's an entire police force um, that I'm sure is dramatically affected. And I'm not going to put words in anybody's mouth, but I, I just, just your, your thoughts on that? Just a reminder that the most dangerous job in policing is general duties. Um, a special operations group officer uh, who was who'd been involved in some pretty tasty incidents said, "Most dangerous thing is uh, being just in a uniform." He said, "The closest I ever got to being killed was as a young copper at the Ringwood Railway Station when someone pulled a knife." He said, "The SOG, our jobs are normally planned. Mm, uh, yeah. We've got overwhelming firearms. Uh, we know what we're doing. Yeah. So it's and we." 
it's a funny old business because you tend to put your youngest people uh, as the first responders. But the the one thing that we've got to remember out of this is the absolute sense of grief and loss from the general community. You think yep. of most places in the world, loss of poor police would either be greeted with glee or, or <laughs> yeah. apathy. Yeah. The mere fact that we are um, shocked indicates we remain a very civilised society. Mm, it's, a very, it's a very good point, as you say. Um, there's certainly other parts of the world where it wouldn't, it wouldn't even get, be spoken about. It would just be par for the course. And all oh. caused by a couple of idiots. So um, I know there's still an ongoing investigation, but uh, geez, you just would like to get some of these people in a room, wouldn't you? Anyway. Yeah, yep, you certainly would. So, um, Sly, if we could uh, go back, I, I suppose, yeah, the, the Nicolo Gobbo one was interesting, but, um, I mean, uh, as I said at the, the at the top, um, there's certainly been um, a fair bit of fodder that you've been able to... Uh, You've been able to work with, you know, the likes of Carl Williams and uh, Gangitano and uh, Mick Gatto and um, uh, Paul Denyer and, you know, a whole series of, of people over the journey. Um, uh, I suppose from our, uh, from our perspective, um, uh, talk to us about Carl Williams. Carl, uh, you would never pick him as a sort of... Um who could organise murders, and he was probably involved in at least a dozen where, where he knew about them yeah. or commissioned them. Um, he looked like, you know, maybe the foreman out of a building site. Yeah. Um, round, chubby face. Uh, I had a meeting with him after Graham Kinnebrew was killed, which he which was done on his orders, mm. and uh, he turned up in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. I thought, Jesus, you're supposed to be wearing a Xenia suit. Yeah. <laughs> and then what of his Xenia shorts? <laughs> yeah. He ended up believing his own publicity. He called himself the Premier because he said, I run this state. Oh, but is that right? I think, um, I think fame is when you're known by one name. And uh, in Melbourne, of course, when, when we spoke of Carl, you knew who he meant. Tony was Tony Mockbell. Yeah. Mick was Mick Gatto. Yeah. And Alphonse was Alphonse Gangatana. I mean... Um, mm. Tony Mockbell at one point was worth 120,000. Three and a half years later, he was worth 15 million and <laughs> he owned a pizza shop. So, yeah. on that basis, if he made $10 a pizza, he had to be making 640 pizzas a day, <laughs> every day. He's eating yeah. 300 of them. <laughs> no, so. he, he liked the KFC, I believe. Uh, strike a lot. But obviously, um, he, um, he obviously informed on um, Paul Dale. And um, he thought he wouldn't be branded by, as you know, by the rest of the underworld as a dog. But I uh, obviously caught up with him down in Barwon Prison. And well, the his ex- view was hmm. his view was if he if he simply uh, informed on a former police officer, the rest of the underworld wouldn't take it badly. But um, there was somebody on the outside who was concerned that if Carl rolled over, he could inform on that particular person regarding a murder, and um, I have little doubt that that particular drug trafficker on the outside was at the enthusiastic organiser of the ambush murder of um, of Carl. Uh, a fellow called Tommy Ivanovic was in that group when Matthew Johnson attacked Carl, and the sort of noise that happens when someone's head's being caved in with a piece of an exercise bike, the noise is horrible, yet I mean, Ivanovic wasn't looking, yeah. and when it began, he didn't look, he didn't jump, he didn't start, he didn't react at all, and then he turned around and 
saw what was going on, he picked up the phone, and he rang that drug trafficker, and he said, oh, my God, something terrible has happened. Yeah, yeah. Matthew was has attacked Carl. He should have got, he should have got seven years of bad acting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, a trivia one. But I, could, I have to ask this on behalf of a very good friend of mine. <laughs> so the exercise bike that, uh, that, that was used to knock Carl's head in, so it's still there. They still use it on a daily basis, do we know? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, certainly not the seat. <laughs> it's, it's in witness protection. It's in witness protection. <laughs> I think the seat is in a particular evidence bag. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it is. Anyway, yeah. I asked and answered. I had to ask with, with it on behalf of, of Brucey. There you go, Brucey. Oh, very funny. And um, I've got a couple. Um, I'd, we've got to we'll take a break in a minute, um, but I, I do want to ask you the question about Dakota Williams, uh, Carl's daughter. And she she once had a very famous um, christening uh, back in 2003 at Crown, where apparently, um, you know, it was, was $150,000 spent on this christening. She had Vanessa Amorosi singing. She had Marty Fields doing some gags. And... Uh, and apparently Nicola Gobbo was Carl's goddaughter. Is that true? I was certainly the MC. I'm not it's sure it was the, the uh, it was the godmother. Yeah. But uh, she she actually gave a speech, something that she regretted. She did say there was a table of lawyers uh, present. <laughs> Remembering Carl was officially an unemployed supermarket shop stacker who <laughs> was making $100,000 a minute a month. <laughs> yeah. uh, wow. Now supermarket shop self-shackers are considered to be um, you know, emergency services. They're on the front, <laughs> li- they're on the front, front line. line yes, they are. So, so Carl missed his moment. Do we still think that uh, Nicola catches up with Dakota on a regular basis or not? Perhaps not. Uh, no. no. <laughs> um, she's fallen out heavily with Roberta and others and uh, she wouldn't be welcome in that uh, in that company at present. In fact, she wouldn't be welcome in much company at present. No. No. Now and, we, and, and not on those shores. No, that's true. Allegedly. Allegedly. Mm. And you're back with the two smoking guns on Southern FM. And we've got John Sylvester, our special guest today, and we're talking through all things underbelly and Melbourne crime related. And, John, no, you've got um, you've got a podcast beginning this week, I believe. So talk us through that. Yeah, it's called Naked City. Um, having done this sort of crime reporting for about 300 years, I've been <laughs> managing to... Um, hide away certain things which include old cassettes, old micro cassettes and VHS uh, tapes. Um, some of them have been interviews that I've done with some fairly notorious people and others of police tapes. In the old days, um, they used to take a, a video guy out and quite often um, the crook who may or may not have confessed would do a reconstruction at the crime scene. You're I've kidding. got boxes and boxes of those. Oh, where, fantastic. and it's it's, a, it's amazing to watch how a murderer will enthusiastically confess. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one where the guy actually uh, he goes back to the crime scene, which is still a messy place, and proceeds to explain how he killed three people. But he, at one point, he sort of cocks his invisible gun, which was a shotgun. And then he says, and he was standing there, and I went, bang. <laughs> he flew about three metres. <laughs> oh. This guy came round the corner, and I went, bang, to him as well. Oh, and so, well, uh, I mean, um, you know, when he got Paul Charles Daniel, the uh, Frankston serial killer, yeah. and once he 
confessed. He wanted to ratify that everything he said was true. And at one point, he said, I buried, the, I buried the purse of one of my victims over there. When the police couldn't find it, he got on his hands and knees and sort of dug at it like a dog oh, until he, he, he returned triumphant with this piece of damning evidence. Wow. And you got, you know, some of them, uh, one of those horrible crimes ever in Australia's history was the attempted murder of Mick Drury, an undercover policeman in New South Wales. Huh. It was so terrible because... The, the would-be killer was hitman Christopher Dale Flannery. Yep. But yes, it was organised by yep. corrupt detective Roger Rogerson. Yep. The person who paid for it was Alan Williams, a drug dealer, because he thought if Mick Drury wasn't about to give evidence, he'd beat his charges. Well, yep. uh, years later, um, Williams came to me and, he confessed, uh, and I've got the tape. So that's the wow. sort of thing that we'll be doing on on Naked City. So you won't just be hearing from the bag house reporter, but the actual um, confession. real deal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that'll be fantastic. That okay, falls into the uh, the rolled gold category, oh, uh, Rutsy. Can't, uh, can't wait for that. Sly, tell me, uh, if you would, about um, sitting down with Mick Ghetto and having a chat after he uh, had removed uh, and uh, uh, Andrew Veneman, uh, and then obviously was found not guilty based on self-defence. Talk, talk to us about that. Oh, well, Mick um, is really fascinating company, and uh, he would uh, dominate any dinner party you went to because he's a fairly uh, charismatic and charming bloke. And after the... Uh, I was actually at the trial, and... Um, I sort of somehow, when I went in there for the verdict, I sort of split his family. So I was sitting on either, he had family members on either side. <laughs> and he he was talking to them. It wasn't a great case against him, but it was still a murder case. And he was 49 at that point. Mm. So if he'd, um, if he'd gone down, he would have got at least 16 years. So he would have been getting out at 65. He turned to his family and he said, and he was quite brave, and he said to his family, said, we're going to hear the most important words of our life allowed to be one word or two. And for some reason, I sort of thought I was an honorary ghetto, so I said, don't worry, Mick, it'll be two, not guilty. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he looked through me, wow. and he said, well, well, I hope you're right. And at that point, I thought, shit, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, so now, funny. I've read all of your books um, with that you've done with Andrew Rule, and... Uh, I've tried to draw, draw a few lessons out of them, a few um, gangster lessons, and if you'll permit me, I'll just um, get you to reference these. I've got three rules about being a gangster. One is don't put your bins out on bin night, because I believe that's how Mr Kinnebrough uh, met his demise. The second one is uh, don't go to restaurant toilets, especially in Carlton. <laughs> And the third one is don't go to the Brunswick Club with Bertie Rout and sit next to him um, for the shout. So they're my three golden rules of gangsters. Have you got any more rules for us, John, that we can well, apply? The, 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 yeah, well, what you're talking about is the predictability. Um, and I like Jason Moran always went to the Oz kick. Yep. Um, Lewis Moran was tight, so he always went to the Brunswick Club because the barmaid there would give him a free beer every now and again. So... Uh, not to be predictable, but the stupid thing is these people were making so much money. Yeah. And uh, yeah. if they'd kept a low profile, they'd still be there. If Jason Moran hadn't shot Carl Williams in the guts 
all be multi-millionaires. Um, so the smart ones are the ones who keep the low profile. Um, you know, Laborio Benvenuto was a dapper Italian man and he always had a low profile and was always very polite. And then someone blew his car up and he said to the police, I don't know why anyone would do that. I've only got friends at the market. Uh, <laughs> about a month later, two people ended up floating in the Murrumbidgee River um, with both minus a certain part of their anatomy. Uh, no one ever tried to blow up Benvenuto's car again. Uh, Sly, I've I've always loved your uh, your take on um, some of the criminal types and elements, and you, you've got this lovely uh, saying that comes up from time to time: "Are they mad, bad, or sad?" And um, you know, and therefore, are they all a combination of all of them, or are there just some that are just individually mad, bad, or sad? <laughs> uh, most of them. Um don't understand the consequence of their actions. And so they can be extremely attractive because they've got this uh, boyish impulse. For example, there was a listening device on one in the Gold Coast. Yeah. He's talking to his girlfriend and said, what do, you, what do you fancy for tea? And she said, dunno. And he said, how about some chilli crab? And she said, oh, that'd be grouse. <laughs> so he picked up the phone and rang Singapore Airlines and booked two First class tickets to Singapore. Oh, we're going to have the, the chilli crab. We should have the real stuff. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> so they, Graham, uh, Kinnebra, they, yeah. Graham Kinnebra had a permanent booking at the Flower Drum, and he was once asked, what you do with all your money? He said, well, I spent 50 grand on fried rice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are they, actually, are they just super delusional? I mean, are they just not... Are they just one degree off being not quite normal? Right. Yeah, I mean, the lift just doesn't go all the way to the top. And yet I'm sure well, some of them in their own right might be brilliant. Well, look, the fact of the matter is that so many of them, not all of them, but so many of them live this fantasy life like they're in the, you know, they think The Godfather's a documentary, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, the induction, it's the induction program that you must watch. <laughs> yeah, but uh, too late they... Uh, they work out that it, it always ends the same with them dead or in jail. And the fact of the matter is, with the pathology, with the pathology reports on most of them, you'll find that when they died, they had antidepressants or sedatives in their system yeah. because they actually worked out how their story was going to end and it was always going to end badly. Yeah. I mean, take Tony Mockbell. Yeah. If he'd... Um, he'd stuck to his knitting, because he was a really smart businessman. If he had that pizza shop... Um, he probably would have got two, three, four pizza shops. And instead of 30 investment properties, mm. he would have had three. And instead of a Ferrari, he would have had a Mercedes. Yeah. And instead of a mistress with double D implants, there would have been double C implants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's brilliant. John, uh, we're, uh, we're very grateful. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to let you go. And I'm going to finish up with something I read with great amusement. And um, uh, it is about you and, uh, and your relationship or um, uh, maybe the influence you've had over your children and... Uh, I did read a piece where they sent uh, they cl- your children claim to have been sent into a zombie-like trance on family car trips, um, as they were told the location of every murder since 1923, <laughs> <laughs> and therefore uh, what level of interest they might have had in that. But then uh, the, the the really gold piece for me was um, 
your daughter and I think she might have said to you one evening uh, that she asked you if you knew anything amusing uh, of which you then replied um, you, you went on to share with her how Carl Williams was shot in the guts on his 29th <laughs> birthday uh, and then apparently the teacher she might have shared that the following day and the teacher came back with this is not amusing to which your reply is tell that to the Walkley judges. <laughs> so uh, congratulations on all, on all of the accolades that you've received. Uh, you've received Sly over the journey. Uh, it's a great thrill for us um, to, to have you today and uh, give us some of those insights and being as close to the action as I suppose anybody is uh, without any residual injury, um, which we're very glad to report as well. So um, we're very, very grateful for your time uh, and thanks for joining uh, Rutsy and I on Two Smoking Guns today. And we'll look out for that Naked City podcast to be a ripper. Thanks for your time, John. Thanks, Stay well. I hear the train a-coming It's rolling around the bend and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down to San Anton When I was just a baby My mama told me, son Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry There's rich folks eating in a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep them moving And that's what tortures me I'd let that lonesome whistle 